Welcome to the Attack Action Podcast, where we talk about friendship, fun times, and most importantly, flesh and blood. Here are your hosts, Taylor and Isaac. Hello, Attactioneers. Welcome again. Isaac, hello. Once again, hello. <laughs> you were just, uh, you threw me off because you were, you have like your arms on your hips and you're like staring right at me. Oh no, I'm just sitting in this regal chair. Oh, okay. Got it. Because that has armrests. <laughs> so I was uh, a little thrown off by the signals you were giving me. I didn't know if you wanted to fight me or fuck me. <laughs> Coming in hot, I guess, to the beginning of the episode. Totally. If this is your first episode. (laughs) It is weird like this every time. So let us uh, begin. Welcome to episode 40. Today we're going to talk about tempo, momentum, and pivot turns. And how all of those are related, not related, and why you should understand them. Yeah, we have a real monster of a of a topic to try to tackle today. Um, so we're going to be discussing these concepts as we understand them, and hopefully, um, I don't know, arriving at some some sort of I <laughs> get better understanding of these concepts in order to uh, you know play the game of flesh and blood better. Totally. God, I really butchered that. No, but, I, I. What you're really getting at is like uh, tempo is pretty well defined in chess, in magic, right? But in flesh and blood, it's a little bit harder to kind of quantify and put your finger on. And so we are going to be attempting to do that so that the player base can more articulately. <laughs> it's always funny when you mess up on that word uh convey ideas and concepts to one another so that's what we're aiming to do and hopefully it works yeah and thanks to everyone who um we reached out for you know input feedback questions on this topic and we're not going to run through the list of suggestions or questions we're going to try to integrate all that input into our discussion but thanks to everybody who reached out Um, Your feedback was very much appreciated and got our, you know, thoughts brewing on, uh, you know, some additional concepts and, you know, understandings of this, uh, this subject. But first, shout outs. Let's do it. Okay. Who do you got, Isaac? Um, Brian Gottlieb. Sorry, I don't even know how to say your name correctly. I think you nailed it. Um. Wrote an article on selling. This is a little while ago now, but wrote an article on selling PTIs, um, which I thought was very well articulated and thought out, like laid out. Um, I'm still unsure on all of my feelings on this subject, but he pointed out a lot of things coming from a um, you know a history of competitive professional TCGs that you know I had maybe not weighed quite as strongly as I should have. So. If you're conflicted or have feelings on this matter, go find that article. It's very good. Yeah, it really was. And there was a excellent podcast, the Instant Speed podcast, uh, and they had Brian on, and he outlaid some of the or outlined some of his uh, main topics from that article. And it was a very good listen. I listened to that podcast the other day while I mowed my gigantic lawn. So 
Totally. That's, that's right. If you're a longtime listener, it's lawn mowing season. And both of my blades on my lawnmower are rusted on, and I can't take them off to sharpen them. So I've <laughs> been trying to figure that out for a few days. So there's nice. the update. And if you'd like a list of the 13 podcasts Taylor listens to in a row while mowing his lawn all day, <laughs> tweet at stay me. Stay tuned. <laughs> um, so beyond just the Instant Speed podcast being great for mowing your lawn, um, I also want to shout out BrewTapCast. There's a lot of casts. Um, they are a uh, channel that emphasizes fab and magic, uh, brewing budget and jank stuff. So they're pretty fun on Twitter and, uh, you know, give us some some love every once in a while. So really appreciate that. Actually, just like fab twitter in general is really great it's like small enough to where you basically know everybody who's saying everything and it doesn't feel weird uh replying to tweets and stuff you know it's great and it's uh positive and hilarious yeah it's like a weirdly small community Mm -hmm. somehow or at least in my twitter bubble Mm -hmm. you know you see a lot of the same same voices and you know personalities Totally. It's great. So there's that. Those are my, those are my shout outs. You got any more? No, that's it. All right. Me too. I'm done. Sweet. New section. Uh, well, fab 2.0 has been released, which we can run down briefly, but it is a pretty beefy article. You know, go look it up and read it. Yeah. And it's well-written, easy to follow. Yeah. Unlike their last article in fab 2.0, new fresh face doing great yep all right hit me with some bullet points okay so in fab 2.0 they are retiring the first edition versus unlimited set um print run strategy whatever you want to call it um now there will only be you know one iteration of the set but it has a slightly different booster layout there is still the normal um, rarity of cards but there is a special slot in which uh, cold foils and legendary cold foils will fall. Legendary cold foils are now like one in every 220 packs, whereas legendary rainbow foils also exist in the same set, and those are the one in 80 packs that legendaries have always been. Yeah, so the big update there, right, is that there's no more unlimited, but uh, we're going to have rainbow foils and cold foils all in the exact same booster set but the cold foil legendaries um get that fabled level of rarity basically right um which means less cold foil legendaries for the rest of us right same amount of cold foil majestics and items etc right um, but any cold foil legendary you get will be extra special. Yeah. And it's also will show up in the token spot inside a booster pack. So as when you're doing booster draft, it doesn't ruin the integrity of the draft by just picking value. You won't be able to use it, your, your token cold foil legendary um, in the draft, but you can use it in sealed. But So that's just to ensure... Uh, the game of draft, the game within a game is uh, 
remains intact. So that's really cool. Um, I really enjoyed this, um, whatchamacallit, uh, change. I think it's way better. It means that for every player, the uh, booster set is going to be more accessible because you don't have to wait for a second print run to get like the $20 discount or whatever. That was something I wanted to find out about was, so are we just doing like $85, $95 booster boxes still? Is the price going to change on those or remain the same as like first edition stuff? My guess is it remains the same as first edition stuff. Um, but I think this is overall positive for sure. It's got to be, right? It's like way better. And now, like it says in the article, if you open a cold foil legendary, <sighs> crazy moment, right? Yeah. It's going to be so sick. Yeah, it maintains that, uh, you know, joy of opening booster packs. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, keeps the joy of opening fab for everyone. And, uh, you know, we were running into that a little bit where, you know, if a new set came out before, like kind of closely before an event you had to buy all first edition mm-hmm. in order to have the cards to play in your event and um if somebody didn't you know if you didn't have like a subscription or access to msrp boxes sometimes you'd be faced with the choice of buying boxes for hundreds of dollars just to be able to play which um you know was just a result of the game expanding so quickly but um you know i'm glad they glad they fixed this now Totally. Uh, also, now we get uh, history packs, which come out biannually, and those are going to have white borders, and they're going to just have key cards from the past sets. So that would be really cool. In the article, it shows, too, that there's like a tunic, a command and conquer, uh, class specialization, you know, those sort of things. So kind of like the cards you really, that we need to have in rotation will be there, you know. So we won't be getting stuff like... Uh, fervent forerunner you know potentially cards nobody plays and that sort of thing so that's really awesome uh moving on there is a uh, renewed focus on the casual formats so there's some changes to ultimate pit fight we are now using commoner as an official format and if you want to know more about our thoughts about the casual side of flesh and blood, check out our new episode of the reaction step, probably sometime after this podcast yeah. comes out. Doesn't exist yet, but, but. it's coming. <laughs> and that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, so you have that. Let's see what else. Also shout out to uh, Colin, the people's champ who uh, just made a great summary um, on our discord. Shout out to our Patreon. Get in on the Patreon so you can hang out with and, Colin. And get sweet play mats. And get sweet play mats. Too um, late. You missed your window. It's all over. You have to wait until maybe next time. Well, if we there'll do be that more again. sweet play mats. Just well, different you never ones. know, dude. <laughs> just saying. Um, so there's been an ELO revamp. Mm-hmm. Um, you can check out all the details of that on the site. Uh, I guess the biggest takeaway from that is that uh, ProQuests and Road to Nats now provide a bit of ELO, or however you phrase. Yeah, sure. Just a, in a little, a little small 
a little bit of elo (laughs) (laughs) yeah a little elo sweet yeah i'm really excited about that um because we were just talking about that change how you know there's plenty of stories in the community where this last pro quest season you know plenty of people top aided a number of events maybe even got top four runner up you know and they're obviously good enough to play on the pro tour but since they didn't win a pro quest they have to go buy their pti to get there right and so this will allow them to potentially have an elo rating to qualify for that pro tour even if they don't get the automatic qualification of winning an event totally yeah it was a bit weird this past season because with a game with you know some degree of variance requiring you to win a tournament to qualify instead of you know classically in tcgs uh like top eights and the like have been um you know kind of the the barometer for skill level so uh you know it was, the requirement of winning a pro quest was a, a bit odd and like taylor brought up is some people would top four multiple times and it's like so now buying a pti just like feels really bad but then also not being able to go feels really bad yeah so. totally yeah a hundred percent so I really like that change, um, especially for myself, who, like, I'm not going to Indiana for a calling. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I have, like, uh, you know, a life. I got mo- lawns to mow, you know? <laughs> Can't totally. Go if you left for the weekend, your house would be submerged. Oh, in grass? For sure. Yeah. I swear like to God. Jungle. I mowed, and it grew back <laughs> instantly in three days. It sucked. Um, anyway, uh, the last thing, um, I'm going to talk about, you can add another point if you want here. The, the last thing I thought that was really great is that there's now a suspended list for blitz. So they did, um, talk about in the article, well, not they, James White talked about how blitz is for sure just kind of like an afterthought in terms of testing and development and it's, uh, classic instructed and, in draft so things get a little broken in blitz and make for not as fun of an experience especially when they're promoting it as one of their main competitive formats so that now there will be a suspended list where um when cards are a little bit uh way above curve they're not going to be usable which i think is overall really healthy for that format especially because we're like really close to it being actually really really fun you know um this past skirmish season has been pretty good in terms of like you know parody amongst heroes and and that sort of thing and more decks feeling viable um so i think that's great it's a great way to keep that format not broken because it has been very broken for so long now so totally well like you i think they they like made it as an entry-level format and a yeah. casual format, but then, you know, it became so popular that it is one of the main formats that the game was not designed to support or designed for, and so they're, like, running into these issues. Um, so, yeah, great. Totally. Anything else off of that uh, extensive article you wanted to talk about? Yeah, there's this just this last detail of signature weapons, whereas mm-hmm. if a hero hits living legend status which is a whole community can of worms at the moment, but 
if if a hero hits living legend their designated signature weapon will be banned along with them so you know bravo zanothos briar is rosetta lexi is voltaire kano is you know aether bane crucible yeah chains is galaxy black yeah. so really glad that weapon's gonna be gone as soon as chains out of here yeah, we can get back to a balanced game for yeah. once. <laughs> um this is probably the only thing i have kind of a slight issue with uh i don't particularly enjoy them taking away weapons you know uh like some like uh i don't know anothos is pretty well-rounded and could maybe work in a variety of guardian decks um and that sort of thing or you know i don't know why story-wise when your hero is such a legend they can't like bequeath their weapon to somebody else you know what i mean yeah and we've never been in a position except for the uh avoidance of the dusk blade meta that right you know a a weapon has been broken and oppressive in a format Mm -hmm. right i mean you could argue some weapons are you know above curve for sure and um you know could have used some balancing but it's never been like a huge problem and part of the fun of getting a new character is like finding builds you know and ways to use some of the diverse old weapons yeah and it can be like pretty fun so i don't really understand the need to you know to get rid of these weapons like why yeah some of it would just be really weird too like if all the rune blades go then the two weapons you have to choose from are dread scythe and reaping blade you know yeah so that kind of sucks right now yeah <laughs> i or mean like you could argue like cool who cares let's just get rid you know but i mean it's just something to like think about totally or like know? if uh you know if katsu goes kadachis right. are gone so then mask is less relevant so then maybe they print a new thing but you know it's it's odd. <laughs> totally. I'd, I'd like to hear the answer as to why yeah. they you know chose to do this because it wasn't something people were screaming for or Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh yeah, interesting choice. Maybe it's just like an all encompassing thing. I don't know. Then why not ban also refraction bolters and Helm of Eisen's peak and you know, I don't know. Anyway. Um romping club i mean come on then you only have claws for any brute you play well claws or if you need to fall back on a more defensive strategy you have to like meat axe it and oh, then right. you're just fatiguing yourself as well <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> it's like what i guess you could just talishar i mean they i they can just make more weapons right i guess yeah totally. that's kind of the deal here totally maybe they'll just print the same thing but with a different name yeah sean you know. blade shanatha shanathy iron song you know he's just a dude with long yeah. blonde hair <laughs> instead of dorinthia totally like evening blade you know <laughs> they tried that Dust oh blade. right they yeah. did yeah it's broken okay anyway Ah, <laughs> oh, getting getting weird uh anything else i know we have some good listener mail you wanted to talk about uh yeah we can move on to that um there's a big long fab 2.0 article go check it out all right so we're going to, like I said, try to address everyone's questions and concerns about our main topic buried within the main topic in our discussion. But we did have one question that we were going to try to answer um, first. 
at the top of the pod in our listener mail segment. So thanks, Mike Popovich, for uh, posing this question. How do you make the decision if you should arsenal a card or use that card to apply more damage on the current turn as a way to maintain tempo? Taylor? Great question. Um, And that's from Twitter, correct? It is from Twitter. Okay, sweet. Right, we get paid every time we... (laughs) Uh, Okay, so... Well, Mike, I think it really has to do with the life totals within the game, right? Or the difference in life totals within the game. So, for example, if you pitch to swing your weapon to deal four damage and your opponent goes from 24 to 20 while you're at 28 health and you're foregoing your arsenal for that, not a great choice, right? But if it puts your opponent from, you know, eight to four, and then all you, in theory, need next turn to survive is a three-card hand, block with one card so you don't die, and then a three-card hand to be able to uh, strip enough cards from your opponent that they basically don't have a turn. So then the next turn after that, you can re-up on your arsenal, then that would be the move. Or if you end the combat chain with something like uh, Snatch, so your opponent has presented or hasn't blocked any of your damage and you're getting a little bit of a life lead and you end with Snatch, that's going to draw you a card to then be able to arsenal. That would be a reason to do that. So then now... They maybe have to spend some armor and a card or potentially two cards, depending on where you are in the game or who you're playing against, to stop that from happening. That would be another great option. Um, And then lastly, if it's one of your blue crap cards that's just a resource card and maybe is going to be hard to play out of your arsenal, maybe it costs two or something like that, uh, and you don't want it to get stuck in there, so you kind of have to then, this is the worst case scenario, then you have to kind of give up um, a bit of your tempo in terms of like the amount of cards you can play on your turn versus your opponent uh, to keep that arsenal free to put something much more impactful for later in the game in there. Um, Isaac, do you have anything extra you wanted to put in there? Uh, I would just add that, I mean, knowing your matchups and knowing your decks win condition or strategy are like pretty key here right like you know dorinthia wants you within attack reaction range uh you know reinar would love you at less than two for reckless swing or even at like 10 or less for their big blowout turn um and that all just ties into like what taylor said if you're going from 20 getting them from 28 to 24 it doesn't really do anything unless for some reason that's your getting them to that life total is your win condition. So just knowing your, you know, your steps to your win condition in that matchup and then deciding if, you know, that's going to get you to that window you need or like execute your game plan. Great. Then play it. But, you know, otherwise it's like almost always better to just arsenal it. And the last, the last thing I would add in here is that I guess knowing the role of all of the cards in your deck Right, like you talked about not getting cards stuck in there. So, you know, if you're playing, you know, if you're playing a rune blade, 
and you can, you know, just play a swarming and threaten like three or four more damage. It's just damage. It doesn't do anything. But if you can arsenal it, next turn it's going to, you know, create a rune champ, maybe turn on Rosetta. Like many cards that you would arsenal have additional functionality in your deck in terms of like enabling a bigger combo than the card itself. Mm-hmm. So anytime you play out that card, you're buying cards out of their hand or getting them to a life total that may be advantageous. But if those things aren't necessary, then keeping that card, if it's like part of your engine or combo or whatever, is just like so much more valuable. 100% agree. All right. So there you go. Great question, Mike. Thank you so much. Totally. Just solving flesh and blood. (laughs) (laughs) One tweet at a time. Um, Okay. So let's move on to the main topic. Nice. Let's get into it. Okay. So we're going to talk about tempo today um but first we're going to kind of define uh the three things that are kind of connected together or that we've identified that are really connected together um and uh what they mean and then we'll talk about um how they they all work and we'll we'll start lining out a lot of different scenarios and um, discussions and, and, and that sort of thing. So this is going to be pretty dense. So if you got to pause, take notes, feel free to listen to this episode a bunch of times. Um, you've been warned that we're going deep. Totally. Unless you're much more intelligent than us, then, uh, you know, might not be as dense. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I imagine too. But like- this is a daunting topic to <laughs> uh, tackle yeah. for us. <laughs> when we start, like when me and you start talking about this, we both enter into like queen's gambit mode late at night when she's just like looking at the board and moving pieces in her mind totally but playing cards on the roof yeah totally that's how i spend most of my time yeah totally that's how i fall asleep every night okay let us first define momentum okay so momentum we are kind of identifying as being able to play cards with no restrictions or interruptions now this also could be defined as having or as tempo or having tempo right a lot of times they are the same um, but the difference in this really becomes apparent when we start talking about control or otk decks right yeah like maybe 90 95 percent of the time momentum and tempo are you know pretty interchangeable right like in most aggro decks or mid-range decks you you want the freedom to be able to play out your five card hand strip your opponent's cards and reduce their life total right and if you're presenting so much damage that they have to block then they lose cards they don't threaten enough back and then you get a five card hand to just like repeat the same process right so that's you know that's what we're looking at as tempo, right? Is like or the momentum. F- or sorry, momentum. Yeah. yeah. Is the just the you know ability to just play out your hands over and over. Your opponent's on the back foot. Right. Um okay, so that's momentum and when we start talking about like I said OTK and control decks, um it'll be a little bit more clear how that's maybe slightly different than tempo in certain situations. Um and you know what? We 
could also be convinced that it's the exact same thing and there shouldn't be a, uh, that term as its own separate thing. Uh, okay, let's talk about pivot or a pivoting turn. So a pivot is when a player with less tempo can pivot into becoming the player with the majority of tempo. Um, right, mo- so they yeah, go, go from they go from losing the game or being behind to some degree to uh, then pivoting and placing the, themselves in a, a better position or a position where they're ahead, closer to their win condition than their opponent, you know, oftentimes having the momentum, winning the game, right? Yeah, uh, for sure, yeah. And, uh, you know, pivots come in all uh, kind of shapes and sizes. I think a lot of times when you think of this, you think of the old uh, block with armor, save all my cards as a as a pivot turn, right? It can also be just a uh, subtle change in style of play or strategy of play over course a few course of uh, turns of the game, right? To where you go from primarily blocking, uh, dealing damage where you can to kind of maybe putting on a lot more damage pressure. Um, and so that can be a way to pivot as well. Um, but we'll get into that more as we yeah, sure. move through the time. Do you want to revisit pivot later? Or yes. do you want to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Sounds yeah. good. Totally. Because we had a lot of questions um, in our Discord and on Twitter and stuff about pivoting specifically. Um, and so we do want to address a lot of those, but we're going to get to that kind nice. of uh, later. So strap in. Yeah. Cycle back. Go to minute. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> we'll talk about pivot. <laughs> okay so then let us define now tempo um so tempo originally comes from uh like music right a way of like keeping time um but then within games it probably comes from chess first right um and so isaac how about you talk to us about chess tempo Okay, and apologies to any chess experts. I'm a chess novice. I just like the game. So if I um, misconstrued tempo at all, apologies. But um, within chess, tempo is defined as time or a turn. And in a chess game, you can see all of the pieces and where they all stand. So you can kind of tell who's winning or losing based on, you know, um, potential outcomes from potential different lines of play right so um tempo can be plural tempi and when a player gains a tempo the other player loses a tempo and it's a measure of how far ahead or behind you are and again in chess it's like i mean the strategies are very complex but it's it can be viewed pretty linear linearly like Mm -hmm. that right because you know, if I'm threatening your queen or your piece or will be in the future and it's going to take you two moves to get out of that and threaten me back, then maybe I have two tempi or two tempos, right? Right. And so you're you're behind in that way. Yeah. Um, and then I can make maneuvers or take moves to further, you know, put you in the hole or you can make mistakes and get further from winning essentially is what it is, right? Like 
how many moves behind are you to get to the line where you win and then your opponent has to uh you know be on the defensive yeah the way i like to think about that too with chess which i did play uh, a couple of games of chess to kind of help wrap my brain around this podcast um is if i make a move advancing you know my board state or winning the game but my opponent can block that by also advancing their game state then nothing has been really gained but if my opponent has to uh, immediately make a move to block what i have done then i have gained tempo right um and that's like a pretty uh simple form i'm sure right but it just helps i think kind of illustrate that because i only get one move a turn and so if i have to use it to block whatever move you have done or you know vice versa then i am not trying to win the game i'm just trying not to lose right right and yeah and uh changes in tempo usually come from some sort of uh mistake right like your opponent you know misinterpreting the lines you can take versus the lines they can take and making a suboptimal play and then you can counter threaten or whatever and then all of a sudden they need to play defensively and i understand that this doesn't directly apply to flesh and blood but i really like to think of the game this way because it helps you understand that like so if you if you watch back so you played a game and recorded it and you watch the whole game back there may be instances where you lose a tempo or your opponent gains a tempo that can be, you know, quite early. Like you can make a suboptimal play when you're both at 30 health, right? Like maybe you should have played this one card and blocked the six damage instead mm-hmm. of playing these two cards and, you know, taking six right. additional damage because your win condition in that matchup is you know would have been more optimally pursued this other way right so yeah no i think i think that's great i think we can also talk about how magic kind of does it right tempo yeah. and and that'll help as we get in here to uh flesh and blood so so in magic right like you get to play land you then get to tap your mana and play stuff right and so the resources on your board continually grow turn after turn after turn right and so if you continually get to uh play a land you then have access to more resources and so you're keeping pace right or tempo with your opponent who's doing the same and if you have uh spells to cast that are equal to the number of mana you have out on the board also helps right so you have one land you have access to one mana you get to play a one uh costed creature right and then the next turn you play your next land and then you get to have a two costed creature etc right and then as soon as you miss one of those like you don't have a land to play or you don't have a creature to play when you have three mana out there Right, um, or you can't efficiently use all of your resources available that turn. Yeah, so then you you kinda, would lose a tempo. Yeah, you start to fall a little bit behind, right? Yeah. Um, so, in, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, totally. And just to um, 
Yeah, to circle back to the chess thing, it's just, I mean, this is in the same vein. It's just so easy to look back on a game and think about crucial decision points in the end game, or maybe when you were both at 14 life and then you decide to take a big hit to then try to seize momentum, right? Um, And it's a little bit less easy to identify, you know, maybe not even misplays, but just suboptimal plays from earlier on. But if you look at the entire match of as a whole map of you making plays towards your win condition in this matchup versus your opponent making plays towards their win condition in this matchup, you know, there's a lot of very important decision points early as well. They just don't hold the weight or the gravity in your mind because you were not punished for them, you know, initially. Yeah. But if you, if you, uh, you know, if you keep track of it, like when we were both at 37 health and then I made this kind of suboptimal play and I lost a tempo, then I'm down a tempo for the rest of the match, right? So then these these other mistakes I make further down the line when we both have 11 health means I'm just like, I already started a bit behind and then I make another suboptimal play or I don't have the flexibility to, you know, regain a tempo or forward my win condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Looking at it in like a kind of a linear scale like that, as far as just gaining or losing a tempo based on your decisions throughout an entire game, I think is a really good, um, I guess, lens to reflect on your matches. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, let's define tempo for flesh and blood to yeah. help everybody understand this stuff. So what we're going to say tempo is in flesh and blood is any play that moves a player closer to winning the game. Yeah. Right. Really simple. Uh, really broad and extremely applicable uh, to basically any uh, deck or style of play there. Um, The analogy that I like to think of it as is in flesh and blood, you can think of tempo as tug of war, right? So the game starts the uh, each player is equidistant from the line in which they have to cross to lose right and as the game goes on the distance each player is from that line changes right so one player might have the vast share of all of the tempo and will be really close to winning but hasn't won yet or it could be really close where they're like only a few inches or feet um ahead of getting their opponent closer to that line right so uh you know that's kind of the game of flesh and blood is like trying to you know get your opponent to cross that line before you do you know yeah try to fulfill your win condition Mm -hmm. or conditions before your opponent does yeah which part of that can be disrupting your opponent yeah or yeah Forcing them to play suboptimally, yeah. of course. And like, I think too, with win conditions, it sounds uh, maybe a bit fancier than it is, but some decks, it just literally is just don't block, deal all of the damage, race you to the bottom, right? Yeah. Not fancy, um, not complicated. It's just uh, simple like that. And that is like a viable strategy as we have seen many times in recent metas, you know? So don't think that because we say like win condition, it's like I got to have all of these things line up and then boom, I win the game. It's like not 
it's not that, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for a lot of mid-range matchups, it's about damage efficiency. Aggro matchups, you're just, you know, trying to output as much damage as possible, mm-hmm. more than your opponent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what we kind of like, you know, it's easy to just think of uh, kind of momentum or, you know, the freedom to play your cards and your you know, opponent being hampered, like momentum and tempo. It's just like oftentimes are the same thing. Right. But then you start thinking about decks, like, um, I'll throw out a few examples here. We can, we can talk about, well, um, uh, before we get into like intense deck oh, sure. analysis, let's try to like, uh, uh, kind of help set that stage a little bit better. Sure. So like, why or what makes tempo important to know and understand right so if you're like i don't know anything about tempo um why are we making this podcast basically right so can you answer that question (laughs) um so i think tempo is important to understand because it's Man, that's a that's a tough one. So a lot of times the way I think of it is it's kind of the freedom to forward your own game plan, right? Which a lot of times is dealing damage, right? Or if you're against a aggro deck as a, you know, manipulative deck, maybe it's strip cards, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But you have you have a game plan and a a winning strategy against your opponent. And if you are freely able to pursue that, then you you have tempo. Okay. Right? Sure. All right, what do you got? <laughs> okay. So uh, the reason tempo is important to understand because it will inform your decisions throughout a game, right? So you can more readily understand like what... Um, cards you need to play what cards you can block with the amount of damage you can take right so the like turn to turn analysis that you make um if you have a good understanding of tempo you can analyze how far behind or ahead you are right when the game gets like really tight you know what i mean obviously it's really easy to know that you have like all the tempo when you get to play five card hands into your opponent and they have like 10 health to your 35 health, right? Like that's really easy to analyze, but especially early in uh, a lot of games, um, knowing those um, or just being able to analyze those first, you know, five turns or so, if your game is going to go beyond five turns, some games now uh, don't uh, can really be impactful because like what isaac was saying earlier when you look at like the whole game and all of the decisions you've made you can see how you know a little damage here a little damage there can really add up to the game state at the end of the game right Right. that makes sense yeah so exactly um and so knowing your um Again, knowing your game plan here is like, because a lot of times you can just enter a game and just be like, well, I'm a head on life and I'm maintaining this pressure, right? And my opponent's down by 10, you know, 
and I've been stripping their cards and uh, et cetera, et cetera. It just feels like I'm winning. But that's not always the win condition for every deck, right? So knowing those decisions early, like even if you're ahead on life, maybe your deck wants to dump their whole hand and block block their attack out and maintain your life lead because you didn't see crucial components of your game plan, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, without knowing that, um, you know, very clearly, sometimes you won't know. Sometimes you'll think, oh, well, I'm ahead by 12. You know, it's very easy for me to just take six to then play out my cards to bring my pressure my opponent again. But if that's not the role of your deck or, you know, your win condition in this match, then maybe that's not always the right decision. Yeah. Uh, totally. I couldn't agree more. So uh, there are some like scenarios that also help you think about tempo. So like does having a health lead mean you have the majority of the share of the tempo in a game? Um, I mean, normally, yes, but no, I think that they're separate. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so you can definitely be behind in health but have more tempo so like otk decks are a great example of that right so like when you think about viscerai and he has uh 15 rune chance and is maybe down by 15 18 life uh you know has plenty of health to pivot off of and still hit that sonata and win the game right um i think great examples also are um ice lexi at nationals versus briar right there's plenty of uh examples of that on camera that you can go watch uh the prince of precision execute um (laughs) where you go down right in those first couple of turns by a large margin yep pretty much every game i'm losing most of the game yeah not losing but down on life but you are slowly like gaining little bits of tempo over the rest of the game right and making those turns for of briar like way more manageable for you to handle and then still whittling away their life to where there's um a parody in life totals and then now you're winning and have more of the share of tempo right yeah that's a good example because there's very clear-cut steps to my win condition in that situation, right? So like chipping through armor, stripping some degree of cards every turn, right? And then ideally denying them arsenal or uh, manufacturing a turn where they have less um, earth tokens, right? And then you hit this point where we're both kind of at 13 life, but they don't have an arsenal. They don't have any armor and like, you know, then I win the game. Um, so knowing that those, knowing those steps and knowing how I gain tempo, um, as you pointed out, it's like that really enables your decision making when you're both, you know, when I'm at 34 life and they're at 38. Um, yeah. You know, you know the decision points to gain tempo, even if it might cost you some life. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I mean, another example too of like, you know uh so like guardian players right so you can be on quite a bit lower life 
right? But then you get off a crippling crush and they don't have any armor left. So they get crushed by crippling crush and you get a bunch of cards yeah. off of them, right? And so now they have like a, a pretty muted turn that isn't very threatening and you've stolen the majority of the tempo in that game and then potentially can leverage that to win. Now, um, that's not always the case depending on what the life totals are, right? Like they could just go from, uh, you know, 28 to, you know, 24 again, okay? And they don't have any cards to play with and then you just sit back and get uh, into like Seismic Surge token hammer, you know, Anothos for six or whatever, you know, which is cool because then maybe they take, they'll wind up taking 10 damage over two turns, but are not like close to dying and have no reason to block a Nothos whatsoever. So then can uh, start to regain momentum and regain those points of tempo back from you. Totally. And that's why understanding your opponent's like capabilities and win conditions in your matchup is essential to you know, weighing these decision points, right? Like you have to understand what they're trying to do and, you know, not be in a position where they're going to beat you. Yep. You know, um, in addition to knowing your own game plan, you have to understand theirs and their, you know, potential threats, their average threats, you know, the way the risk versus reward of their, you know, capabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, Another couple that like Prism and Kano both play most games on lower life. Yeah. You know, um, while winning the game oftentimes. Right. Um, so, yeah, while oftentimes life total is a good indicator of who's ahead, it is certainly like completely unrelated. Right. Yeah. You have to take into account like the whole game, the board state, you know, all of that stuff. Um, <clears throat> here's a little question for you Can you have too much tempo? <laughs> uh, no. I I would say some decks um, are unable to capitalize on having too much momentum. Sometimes like old him right. with five cards yeah. can really brick. But um, as we define tempo, you're just steps ahead of your opponent right. to winning the game. Yeah. And the more you have, the better. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. Um, okay. So let us then kind of move on. Um, so let's kind of talk about the something we've been talking about a lot um, leading up to this podcast is kind of the difference between momentum and tempo, right? Um, so the when, let's say in the old, the previous meta, right? Or it could be it could be now, but we have OTK Viscerai versus Old Time, right? And so in a classic matchup of that fashion, uh, Viscerai is wanting to play outside of the realm of uh, momentum based playing, right? And just give it all to Old Time because if they play that game, Old Time will just have more tempo in every exchange and. Uh, just grind out Viscerai. So Viscerai has to play outside of that realm and give up all of the momentum to Oldheim to where they can continually, you know, arsenal cards, play all five cards into Viscerai. And then the decision point that they have to make 
is can how much damage can I afford to take while still making rune chance and not blocking with all of my sonatas so then I can't win the game, right? Um, and knowing how many rune chance you have left in the deck to make. So you have this balance of all of these like uh, calculations, but both decks have uh, some amount of tempo, right? Even though the Viscerai player isn't attacking Oldheim on every turn, right? Right. And so these examples are kind of the reason we, you know, we sat down and we're like, wait a minute, like tempo and momentum are not the same thing, right? Because like in this first example, you know, and I've felt this too playing against because uh, as Lexi, sometimes you play against OTK Viscerai and it's like, you know, if you're, you always have momentum, you have all of it. They can't attack once, otherwise a rune chance are popped and defeats the purpose. But, you know, if they block with three cards, make some rune chance, block with two cards, make some rune chance and you are unable to slow their rune chant production um, or kill you know, them enough fast enough to, yeah, yeah. or deal enough damage, uh, you know, in relation to that. You know, sometimes you'll look up and just be like, oh, they just made more rune chants. They're on 11 rune chants and they still have 32 life. You know, I haven't leaked enough damage um, in, you know, regards to how many rune chants they've created, right? So right. I have full momentum. They're behind on life. Maybe they're even missing a piece of armor, but Viscerai has tempo now, right? right? As they're as winning the, the game. Yeah. They're closer to their win condition than I am to mine. Right. Right. So that this is like a very clear cut example of like momentum is not tempo. You right. know. Um Yeah. Um and I think another uh kind of maybe more complicated example of that is recent Prism decks. Right. Yep. So um you could be just chaining five card hands into prism, but prism could also be at the same time kind of building a board state and, uh, you know, getting cards into soul, um, whether that's through auras or just hitting with like a non-threatening herald, um, and that sort of thing. And what they're slowly doing is trying to get enough of a board state to where they can leverage that advantage of like having four auras out to where, the exchange becomes in their favor, right? So like they'll block with three cards, but then maybe uh, make a spectral shield and then attack you for five one time. And it's really inefficient to block one damage with a whole card that blocks for three. And by doing so, you would be giving up, uh, you know, some of your tempo because that exchange is like really not worth it. So until you're at low enough life, those attacks don't matter. But they're doing five damage to you every time and creating a spectral shield and so gaining a health. So really it's like a six point swing. And if you're only doing like, you know, two damage, three damage, you're losing all of those exchanges depending on like what the health totals are at, right? But then that's why you can see so many prism games like they're at nine health and you're at 20 or whatever and you could be losing that game even though you have like that yeah. higher life total so far behind yeah totally <laughs> yeah like a good example of a turn in this kind of scenario is just like when so if you threaten prism with a bunch of damage but no hit effects right 
or like not enough control effects. So then Prism takes more damage and goes down from 25 to 15, say. And then on their turn, they play out two more auras. And now they have six auras and 15 life. And you're at, you know, 32 life, right? This is, they have not stripped any cards from your hand. They haven't really gained any momentum in terms of the like push and shove of like a typical mid-range game. But they have greatly forwarded their game plan and they probably have tempo over you in this scenario, right? They have too many auras to pop. They're, you know, definitely going to steamroll you here. But you're just, you're winning by so much as far as life totals go. And I think that Prism is a, Prism matches from the other side playing against Prism is a really good example of understanding tempo. Because in these matches, like every deck has to tackle it differently. But understanding when to counter Prism's board state or win condition versus when to push damage or pressure their hand or even block yourself occasionally or maybe early um, is like really crucial um, and a very, you know, high level of flesh and blood play to correctly decision make against a Prism opponent for the whole game. Yeah. And if you look at the Indianapolis calling finals you can see um just how well michael hamilton understands this concept of tempo and uh knows prism's uh capabilities and that sort of thing and aggressively takes down auras when he can um so that the prism player cannot gain too large of an advantage and then like you know, activate Starvo um, when is appropriate and that sort of thing. And he does a really good job of making sure the exchanges are either equal or uh, slightly in Michael's favor. Um, so that's a great game to uh, think about. Yeah, definitely. Th- these concepts through. Um, <clears throat> what else? What else have we talked about? Should we uh, talk about armor blocks and pivoting or do we want to stay on this uh, kind of do we miss some stuff about i have, i have one more example cool yeah um, yeah, yeah. That i mean maybe... we could keep going with different deck examples totally. to help everybody understand um but this one may be a little more debatable but i was thinking so when we were thinking about these examples of momentum and tempo being different um i did think about playing kano and you know like in Kano or in classic combo Reinar Claws from the Crucible era, um, playing an energy potion is like maybe optional in Reinar, you could argue. But in Kano, there are times when you attack them on your turn. So you're trying to gain some momentum by stripping a card out of their turn um, in order to either push damage through again on their turn or to just mitigate some of the damage that they can deal back to you so sometimes you are vying for momentum but there's these completely separate points in the game sometimes that are fairly generic like placing an arsenal a key card but playing an energy pot is oftentimes part of your win condition for kano i mean you can certainly win games without it but um at least in my um novice experience oftentimes you gain a tempo by playing an energy pot and it is a core part of your win condition with that deck. So 
you know, when I'm when I'm playing that deck most times, if I play an E-Pot, I feel like I gain a tempo, but it has nothing to do with damage exchanges or, um, you know, momentum shifts or yeah. whatever. Yeah, totally. I think the energy potion in Kano is like a really interesting thought uh, experiment because you definitely do gain a tempo, right? But it's like, it's a bit theoretical because if you just die and never use that energy potion, then it it did nothing, right? Totally. Then your opponent has tempo or is several steps ahead of you and you don't have tempo. So then I guess it's not. Yeah. So if you so if you rewatch the game and then you win as Kano, I think that is a moment where you gained a tempo. Yeah. And then there's for several sure. more for and sure. then you you know yeah. win I've, the game. But if you lose then Maybe you gain a tempo there and then lose tempo later. I'm unsure. It's it's a complex thing to consider in flesh and blood. Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, you could probably say like, well, you know, every aura I play out in Prism is a theoretical tempo, you know, and that sort of thing. But I would counter that they kind of aren't because those are like threats you will have to deal with at some point, right? If they get too many out there. And those are fairly interchangeable. Like each one is not a crucial component. Yeah. I just thought of the energy pot in Kano because that's like a very specific card. Right. That is a critical play almost, you know? Yeah. It definitely helps you win the game, but only if you like win the game. Yeah. You know? (laughs) So um, that one's really interesting. If you have any thoughts about that, please like tweet at us or leave a comment on the YouTube uh, page. Um, and that sort of thing. Um, let's see what else, right? Um, I think that's it. I mean, that's the you know, like you said, there's millions of examples, but yeah, totally. Um, and those certainly aren't the only ones. Those are just kind of like some of the prominent uh, exceptions to the classic momentum tempo. Yeah, you know, um, exchange in flesh and blood. Yeah, um, I think we'll probably talk about more and how they relate as we talk about. Um, yeah pivot turns and that sort of thing yeah so uh we got a ton of kind of questions about pivot turns how to have the correct pivot turn how to identify pivot turns um you know blah 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 blah. who's a pivot turn what it how do i pivot turn you know where's a pivot turn etc um so i want to be clear about pivot turns that they are not like this kind of oh i've correctly identified my pivot turn and now i'm going to come from behind and win that is like not the rule that is the wild exception and probably actually never happens or like i drew my pivot turn and found it oftentimes drawing a crucial piece of your game plan is part of maybe manufacturing a pivot turn right but it's not like Oh yeah, I drew my hot combo and now I can take damage to pivot. Sure, yeah. you have to identify those moments. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of times you kind of manufacture a pivot turn yeah. leading yeah. up to it. Yeah, you don't just go, oh, these are the right five cards. Thank God I have enough life. I'm going <laughs> to win now. You know, like yeah. it just doesn't happen like that. So uh, pivot turns are a strategy that is a part of your overall game plan to win. And very rarely a pivot turn is a spontaneous come from behind play. Most notable 
in mid-range decks that want to change their strategy partway through the game. So like uh, kind of the mid-range dash deck of back in the day wanted to block a lot, grind you down with pistol, get out uh, two chambers and, you know, maybe a purifier, right? And then um, manufacture either like a high octane turn where they do a couple of boosts, gain a bunch of action points, and come in with the pistol for a bajillion times. Yeah. Right? Or just shift gears and start. All of a sudden their damage output is a lot greater than yours. So then they can... Yeah, because they've been... They've been stacking all of their uh, mechanologist cards, so now they can like, you know, zero cost boost, and you don't have the health total to uh, take ten or twelve damage or whatever. Yeah, yeah but they do, right? Yeah, and Leviathan is a great example of this because you uh, kind of block out, build an engine, and then you choose a turn to pivot, and you kind of manufacture this place, and once you do pivot you don't really have a choice to unpivot yeah in like classical vibe builds yeah because now you have your blood debt engine going right and that's one of the reasons right they like printed husk is to help you with that right to like absorb a huge amount of damage um to then uh put the pressure back on your opponent right um but they just don't come out of like thin air most of the time yeah, I mean, so I would counter that there is, you know, a, uh, there like is a situation where you can, you can fall behind, right? Like you can get a bit unlucky or your opponent can get very fortunate or surprise you with their strategy, right? Or maybe you make a misplay and, you know, then you do have to maybe change your game plan a bit or what you're going to do. Um, and so like I guess my my argument here is that a pivot turn can be kind of manufactured on the fly or improvised if need be right but ideally and your game plan is not that right yeah Um, control decks are built around this idea right so like again to old time just block ice hammer hammer every turn to get your life total low enough to where once you are far enough out of threats that your turn becomes so manageable that they can save more cards and apply more pressure to your life total making it so you have to spend your cards blocking rather than attacking right is a really classic example of like pivoting right yeah just Quick side note here. Uh, also, fatigue decks are a good example of like an odd case of tempo, right? Because they may be, you know, they never have momentum either, or maybe at the end they do. Right. But um, they may, if you're not leaking any damage through to a, against a fatigue deck, they have tempo. They're winning the game right. as your cards just crash against their solid wall and you don't do anything. Right. Um, so very clearly winning, very clearly have tempo, not uh, attacking or <laughs> maintaining momentum whatsoever. Totally. Um, so let's talk about armor blocks then and how they're related to like all of these things. Right? Yeah. So uh, biggest mistake I see all the time still 
which is wild because I feel like the information on armor blocking or just the mantra of save it for as late as possible is like widely known, but still people like will block with their armor extremely early thinking that that, which can be a strategy, right? They're trying to like keep tempo mm. by just like using their armor to block. Um, but it's like not as necessary when you're at 30 health as it is when you're at five health. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, there, there are a lot of different ways to like use armor, but, uh, a huge one in flesh and blood is to save your armor for really late in the game when perhaps both of the opponents are on low life. Like you're both at like four or five, but you still have, you know, um, you know, two or four armor worth left of blocking. You essentially have four extra health that your opponent has to grind through to win the game. And they don't have any armor. So you can like leverage that um, against them and use your armor and key parts to keep maybe a card or two that makes your turn like a little bit more threatening and then forcing them to block with more cards than they really want to. And then that makes their turn more manageable. And then um, because your their turn is more manageable, you still get to keep more cards. And then you, you've gained... Um, incremental tempo advantage there and you're able to like close the game out right totally and this doesn't always in the fast meta we're in now this doesn't always apply to like super low life totals you know if you're holding a hand that does 18 damage um identifying that you can use your armor or maybe one card and save a bit of armor maybe one card and a piece of armor to then um you know pivot and just really hammer down at your opponent or um, just kind of keep kind of your you know your couple of points of tempo advantage right like they're presenting a fair share amount of damage but you can maybe just spend a card and a piece of armor to kind of block out a key card that kind of keeps their damage ceiling within tolerable levels while continuing to apply still plenty of pressure on your turn Right can keep you like slightly ahead uh, in the game as well, um, but that's a little bit more nuanced and takes quite a bit more practice in the matchup. Yeah. Right. And yeah, we'll circle back to like knowing your opponent's capabilities yeah. and win conditions because sometimes you'll, you know, like say Prism has a f- a floating resource, but also tunic up, and you think they're gonna, um, you know, herald you, like war tune you, mm-hmm. right? But then they erudition you, and you like have to block it. Right. So then that surprise buys a piece of your equipment and a card, which right. is unfortunate and sometimes happens. But you uh, have the equipment saved for that scenario because you know against Prism, um, hopefully you're not using it to block a wave of <laughs> uh, one attack auras. Yeah. Hopefully you are have maintained a control over that aspect of the game and are saving it you know, to block your addition, essentially. Yeah, totally. And, you know, all of that, and, and that's a really great complex example that kind of brings potentially everything together because if that's the first erudition you've seen, right, then potentially Prism has gained a few points of tempo there because 
now you have less armor to block their next iridition that they come in with and even less when the third one comes in and maybe that's when they kind of run you over in the damage race right, right. so now you're trying to make those exchanges between the next iridition in your favor so that if it does come along and connect because you don't have the armor to block it you don't fall so far behind that you can't win the game right right and some of these you know um you know and i guess in kind of an ideal matchup you can use your armor to uh pivot right manufacture this pivot turn yeah or you can identify a window in which you pivot and then you can use your armor to maintain momentum and or tempo right but sometimes use of armor is kind of like like if you're playing against katsu you can um kind of bleed out your armor a little bit to block kadachis or maybe a piece of armor and a card to block a crucial mask kit just to turn off mask and then hammer down and have uh favorable damage exchanges just from turning mask off at crucial points by like using your armor intermittently so it does vary quite a bit but yeah definitely um and so like then the real question is right how do you identify how to use your armor to help you either pivot or um maintain your tempo advantage and my answer to that is like reps matter right you can't just like uh show up against somebody and they don't know your deck you don't know their deck you know it's like two brand new decks and you can't just be like this is the rule of thumb always unless it's the savior armor for as late as possible scenario right um yeah it's like night and day you can i mean i've played a deck like i've made a deck that's favorable in a matchup and just lost by 20 because i didn't know how to play it or play the matchup yeah and then as you learn that yeah then you can more adequately use your armor as as blocking tools as you need right you understand the importance of that um and and this is just a great rule for for life in general right there are no hacks (laughs) to just (laughs) there's no shortcuts right you have to put in the work to improve and identify that stuff right um and so hopefully, right, through the this podcast, you can then start to, like, play your next game and think about the kind of, like, tempo exchanges and try to start training yourself to think about that. I think most people probably, um, you know, do the quick math of, like, okay, I'm going to take 12 damage, but I'm going to do 15 damage, right? That seems good. But maybe it isn't the best exchange based on like where your you know life totals are how many cards are left in deck what they've played what you've played you know that sort of thing this might be the last 18 damage turn you have in the game and you know your opponent might have recognized that and you didn't you know so it gets it, it gets kind of complex but it just takes practice to think about yeah and So I guess a way to like dial it back and, you know, a good place to start maybe is just to know how your respective decks behave at each, you know, chapter in the game, right? Like when you each have five life or each have 10 life or 15 or 20, um, how does that matchup play out? Do you have advantage at this life total? 
um, if you pivot at this life total, et cetera, et cetera, um, how does that play out for your deck and your strategy? I think it's just like a good thing to look at initially, you know, because some decks excel when they're both, you're both at really low life. Some decks excel when you're both at, you know, 15 life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just, you know, identifying that will make it like, I guess, easy to, uh, you know, understand or implement what we're talking about just kind of at a base level, right? Yeah, totally. Um, So there you go. I hope this was informative. I hope we made sense. And uh, I think we made sense. So I hope that was enjoyable. We do have some signature segments to end with here for you to kind of cleanse the palette. You can put down your pen and paper or stop typing furiously or whatever uh, you need to do. Um, So we have pick, pass, pray up first. So uh, Isaac, this is a draft scenario. I'm going to give you three cards. I miss draft. <laughs> I do Although too. we drafted Arcane Rising the other day, and maybe now that I'm a better player or just better at draft, I don't know, but I loved it. Yeah, it's a great fun. draft set. I'm yeah. sorry that the world missed out on Arcane Rising. I know it's kind of like wonky and weird maybe, but... No, it was so uh, sick. It was great. I was just living my best ranger life and just freaking <laughs> pitch stacking and... <laughs> Totally. And, and just w- crushing it. It was so fun. It's just because there there was no era of that, I guess, that but it's just like it's really good. Yeah. And all of the all of the generics that and some of them kind of janky are all like just very well crafted to that set in limited play. Totally. So great job, LSS. Yeah. Sorry we all missed it due to unforeseen pandemics. Lead the charge into Moonwish. Put your arrow on top. Azalea it in, boom. Totally. Red in the ledger, five dominate. Awesome. Amazing. Great play. Totally. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Draft scenario. I'm going to give you three cards. One of them you're going to pick, one of them you're going to pass, and one you're going to pray comes back around. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Our first card up is Entwine Lightning Yellow. Pitches for two, cost zero, is an elemental attack action. Attacks for three, defense for two has lightning fusion and reads if entwined lightning was fused it gains go again okay second card rights of lightning it's an elemental rune blade attack action pitches for three costs one attacks for two defends for three also has lightning fusion and reads when you attack with rights of lightning if it was fused deal one arcane damage to target hero if you have dealt arcane damage this turn, rights of lightning gains go again. The third and final card, Cracker Jacks. It is generic equipment arms. Defends for zero and reads action. Destroy Cracker Jacks. The next attack action card you play this turn gains plus one. Go again. So Isaac, which one are you going to pick? Which one are you going to pass? And which one are you going to pray? Comes back around. I'm going to pick Rites of Lightning Blue, my favorite card in Aria Limited. <laughs> I hate that it's a blue. That sucks. But at least it does three damage, and you need to pitch a card anyway to pay for Rosetta. Right? So like a free non-attack, pitch a yellow, play this, is still very productive and very good. Right? Um, 
it blocks for three. It it's also a blue, which you don't need that many of, but um, not bad for a resource card. Uh, you know, I I do like Entwine Lightning. Um, unfortunately, it's it's not the red, and uh, Cracker Jacks is pretty good, but is uh, just not. You know, like Mark of Lightning, I think is excellent. Cracker Jacks is pretty good for Thump, but and Ball Lightning Red, <laughs> really good there. But uh, just like a little bit less applicable, maybe. I'm probably wrong here as I say this. I think I should pick the equipment. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray then Twine Lightning Yellow comes back around just because I'm dipping into Lightning Hero hair, and uh, you know it's also a go again attack to get to Rosetta. Sweet. What what do you think about these cards? It's kind of interesting tough. one. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to pick Cracker Jacks because of its kind of broad application. And I do value being open. And it's kind of like, you know, tier 1.5 on the equipment list in uh, Tails. So... I'm happy to pick those up. Maybe Mark of Lightning isn't going to come around. Maybe I'm not even in Lightning, right? And then if I'm in Ice, it's kind of the um, best arm slot for that, you know, or Earth. Um, so I'm going to pick Cracker Jacks. I'm going to pay, uh, play, pray is the word, for Rites of Lightning. Um, a blue, you pitch it. Right, You see it late game. Hopefully you can fuse it and it deals that last crucial bit of arcane damage you need to win the game. Um, and then I'm going to pass on Entwine Lightning Yellow. Um, it's pretty cool that it's you know free and can get go again, but uh, it doesn't have a break point. It doesn't really block. It does pitch, which is kind of nice, but uh, the Rites of Lightning kind of just does a little bit more if I'm going to be in a lightning deck and um, yeah it just does more it just has a, an ability to win the game over in twine lightning so I'm gonna pass on that so there you go nice sweet uh, what's next Isaac board game from the closet board game from the closet so it's gonna be a little different this time I did not have a board game from the closet to share but um, I wanted to recommend Elden Ring to everybody. I know everybody's already playing it. But um, I haven't played any video games in years. And um, this game is just excellent in so many ways. But my favorite part is that... Maybe not my favorite part. One of my favorite parts is that it doesn't like give you um, clear-cut like quests or goals or like a giant beacon to run to and just blow shit up on the way and then you did it it'll give you like you know somebody will say something kind of cryptic and you're like what and then that's it and you gotta go fucking figure it out yourself you know <laughs> so go figure it out <laughs> and you have to like play with patience and like uh deliberateness deliberation i guess I think there's like a, a large amount of humor in that game too. Like the amount of times you die, sometimes the way you die. Oh yeah. It's pretty and, funny. And it's like <laughs> super funny too. It's like you come into this beautiful Vista and there's just like some dude like chopping wood in the middle of the field. And you're just like, 
right? I got to go talk to that guy. And then he just says something weird and cryptic, right? And then you just like kind of move on with your day. Like that was <laughs> yeah. a weird experience, you know, but the weird cryptic thing he might said like is really uh, important, you know, or he says his thing and then you turn around and a bear pops out of nowhere and rips your head off, you know? Totally. Hilarious. Yeah, it is pretty funny. That happened. I was like, I'm going to shank the stupid guard standing here facing the other way. And then, yeah, Grizzly landed on me and ate me. <laughs> also, I started the game early and was like, yeah, I was pretty good at Dark Souls. I bet I could take this knight right out of the gates. <laughs> Instantly died right away. There's also one part where you warp to some random place and then you just walk to the edge. It's just ground. And then the edge breaks and you just fall to your death and lose all your souls that I had left somewhere else. <laughs> For no reason. Oh, so, so anyway. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> Great game. Um, so one from our uh, digital closet yeah. there. Um, okay. Well, um, thanks everybody for sticking it out. This is uh, a little bit heavier than uh, our podcast usually is, but we're going to try to do kind of maybe these more bigger topics um, as we, you know, move forward. Yeah, interspersed as we're comfortable with. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, we're trying to line up a really great interview um, with Onnit from Fab Foundry. Um, you know, really great person, and he's been a supporter of ours since the very beginning. So we're hoping to um, get him on the pod in the next couple of weeks. So you have that to look forward to. Um, don't forget to check out our reaction step. We're going to talk about the casual player. So far from the days of tempo. Totally. You know? I have a last takeaway. I just oh, want to... Wonderful. I, I want to reiterate. So if you ever think about the game you played or watch your game back or whatever, try to think about every decision point from the very beginning, right? Of whether you lost or gained a tempo making that play, right? Even if it was uh, just suboptimal, not the ideal play. Maybe you didn't like clearly start losing, but um, if you think about every decision in those terms, especially the first half of the game when the stakes are just as high, but you just don't realize it yet, you know, I think that uh, can be helpful to critically thinking about your own performance. Sweet sage advice from uh, a prince, <laughs> prince of sage. <laughs> I don't know how to end it <laughs> this time. Uh, appreciate you all, and we'll catch you on the next one. Goodbye. Good night. Thank you for listening. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at the Attack Action Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Battlebro Taylor and at Battlebro Isaac. Shoot us an email: the Attack Action Podcast at gmail.com. If you would like to support us, like and subscribe, shop for singles using our affiliate link, or support our Patreon for as little as $4 per month.